Israel, anti-Israel, pro-Herod, and in turn pro-Rome. So you've got the Pharisees against Rome. You've got the Herodians very for Rome, very disunited, right? This is very, this is a disunifying thing, but they're united in what? Their hatred of Jesus. So you've got two groups of people, Pharisees against Rome, Herodians in favor of Rome. And then we read verse 14, continuing on in the narrative, verse 14, it says, And they came to him, the Herodians and the Pharisees, and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true and that you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And pause right there. I just want us, this is not a truth, but I just want us to notice the irony in this moment right here. The, the Pharisees and the Herodians, before they ask him the trapping question, what do they do? They flatter him. They try to butter him up. They try to smooth Jesus, try to get him on their side. But we know their true intentions, don't we? We read to try to trap them. Jesus certainly knows their true intentions. So, so, so they seek to trap him, and they first hit him with these compliments. But the irony here is that everything that they said maybe tongue-in-cheek, is actually true. I mean, look at this. It says, Jesus, we know that you're true. We know that you don't care about anyone's opinion. Jesus is true. Jesus does not care about man's foolish opinion. Jesus is not swayed by appearances. And Jesus truly teaches the way of God because what? He is God. And because of this, because of the fact that what they came against him was true, because of that, they're not going to sway him are they? Their attempts to butter Jesus up are actually of no use. A person who's not swayed by appearances is a person who will not be swayed by empty flattery either. And that's Jesus. So it's very ironic. The very thing they bring to him to butter him up is actually true and what will cause their downfall. But, and before we jump into this, man, I want to be this type of person. Don't you guys? Like, I want to be, I want us to be a type of people who don't care about appearances, who don't care about looking cool in this cultural moment, who, don't, who are not swayed by every cunning wind of doctrine. But I want us, I want to be a person who is planted deep by the truth of God's word. So after this instance of, of, of ironic, insincere, but also true flattery, What's the trapping question that the, that the Pharisees, and her, I try to combine them, the Pharodians. That's not it. The Pharisees and the Herodians. What's the trapping question that they bring to him? Well, look back with me at verse 14. So they, they butter him up, they flatter him, and then it says, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So the question at hand was that of a poll tax that was paid to Caesar. The word for tax here could also be translated as a census, the counting of the people. This is the same census that brought Mary and Joseph back to Jerusalem. So this was, this was the question at hand. And, you can, uh, and this poll tax, the money that was generated from this poll tax, was ultimately funneled to the Roman government. And as Jewish people... You can imagine they're questioning something like this. Okay, we've, we're the Jewish people. We're, we're, we're from Israel. We've always been in a nation that loved the one true God. We've always been in a nation 
that, that propagated and fueled the worship of Yahweh. And now we're supposed to pay taxes to a secular government? We're supposed to be involved in a government that, that, not, only, uh, that not only doesn't want to teach God's word, doesn't want to worship God, but doesn't even want to allow the worship of God. Remember the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the Pharisees, were what? Anti-Rome, pro-Israel. And if Jesus tells the people, okay, Pharisees, you're right. Don't pay the poll tax. He's won over the Pharisees, certainly. They're on his side. But what about that other group of people? The Herodians have something against them. And also, the Roman government, you best believe, is going to be on him quickly. So you see the situation at hand. Two groups of people divided over a political issue, united in their hatred of Jesus, bringing him a question that they know, they just know in their hearts, will stump Jesus. Bringing him a question that they know will get him. And, and, and however Jesus answers, the other side is going to pounce, right? However Jesus answers, they say, no matter what, if he answers this way, we got him. If he answers the other way, you guys got him. So we're good. We're, we're together in this. So before, I mean, before we move on, and, and I know in our thinking, we're like, man, like the Pharisees, Herodians, not good people. Why would they do this? Why would they try to trap Jesus? Why would they want to be divided in this way? I want us to realize that this type of problem, this kind of problem, very much looms large in our churches today. I mean, very much looms large in the broader Christian culture in which we live in today. Think with me over the past couple years. These kinds of questions have been talked about and asked amongst faithful Christians, people who claim to be Christians. There's been questions that have divided Christians, even split churches. Questions like, to wear a mask or not wear a mask. Questions like, are you Republican or are you Democrat? Questions like, do you take the shot or do you not take the shot? Questions like, are you voting this way? Because if you vote this way, I'm not associating with you. Questions like, man, this, this whole government seems like a wash. Why should we even be involved? And that's just to name a few. Very polarizing questions that our Christian culture has come into contact. And the way that Jesus responds to the question that the Sanhedrin brings him teaches us how we interact with earthly government. Jesus answers this question in a super incredible way. It causes them to marvel, and it causes us to marvel the more we look at it. He responds in a way where neither side has the ability to cast stones at him. So in Jesus' response, we see three truths about how Christians relate to government. So today we're going to look at three truths that Jesus teaches here about how we, as followers of Jesus, relate to earthly government. So follow along as I read his response Verses 15 through 17. Verse 15, they asked him the question, shall we pay taxes to Caesar? Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, let me look at it. And they brought him one, and he said to them, whose likeness, whose inscription is this? And they said to him, it's Caesar's. Look at Jesus' response, verse 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The poll tax was requi- that was required of the citizens cost one denarius. 
One denarius was about the average wage for the average citizen, daily wage for the citizen at the time. And, and Jesus asked to see the coin. He said, okay, you're asking me a question. Let me just see the coin that you're asking about. And once again, there's irony here. Jesus doesn't have the coin. But the people who say, we don't want to pay the tax, have the coin. So it shows that they're a little bit more bought into the system than they lead on to. So he gets the coin. And on this, on this coin was the image of Caesar, the image of the Roman ruler. And, and, and below it, there was a picture of Caesar, and below his picture was the inscription, Son of the Divine Augustus. And you flip the coin over, and it said, The High Priest. So here's a coin that was not a coin that worshipped the one true God. It had Caesar's image on it. And Jesus says some of the most infamous words that we read in the Gospel of Mark when he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In that response, Jesus legitimatizes that form of government, doesn't he? So here we see our first truth that Jesus teaches in our text. Truth number one, as Christians, we have an obligation to earthly government. As Christians, we have an obligation to earthly government. We have an obligation. In his response, Jesus corrects the Pharisees, but he also corrects us. Here is a word of warning from Christ himself to those of us like me who don't want to, I mean, I was convicted of this text because my natural disposition towards government is usually, man, it's pretty bad. Therefore, I don't, I don't even, I, I'm going to have a blissful ignorance when it comes to the things of the government. Here, here's a word of warning for those, who us, uh, those of us in this room who are always skeptical of the government, who always want to push back against every authority. See, government as a whole is given by God for our good. Think with me about what our civilization would be like with no government. We have movies that portray what it's like. It's chaos. There's violence. There's chaos. There's no order. So God institutes government for the good of the people in the world. So Paul picks up on this theme of of government in Romans 13, the most clear passage that talks about how we relate to government. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 of Romans 13, and this is what Paul says. Verse 1, let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. Paul makes it extremely clear what Jesus teaches here. That God has instituted government. Government's God's idea. And think with me about the good things that government brings to us. Government gives us rules to live by. If I drove, me and Bethany and Micah went home and we got in a car wreck, and it wasn't our fault, and then the, the, the driver of the one who hit us got out of his car and beat me up, there will be consequences for him. 
There's laws against that type of behavior. Government gives for us a sense of order. Let me ask you this question. Did you like the roads that you drove in to church on? I, I did. Otherwise, I mean, think of think with me. You get off 310. Well, that's government road too. But say, okay, you get off, you're, you're coming from New Orleans, and you want to come to St. Rose. If it wasn't for government roads, what would you do? Get eaten by an alligator, probably. But also, take it, you'd take an airboat, or you'd slip, go through the swamp to get here. So, like, when you're on State Road 626, St. Rose Avenue, thank the government. Like, that's a nice thing. That's a good thing that government gives for us. And those are just a few ways. There's lots of other things and, and, and positives to earthly government. I mean, if you think, just think about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were laws given by God to the nation of Israel for their good. It was for their flourishing, not so God could stand up in the sky and be a fuddy-dud. It gives them for their good. Mark Dever, who is pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, uh, he's the guy who does all the nine mark stuff, he says this, his quote is, even bad government is better than anarchy. He says, even bad government is better than anarchy, which is hard for us to swallow. And Jesus says, render to Caesar, render to the government that which is due the government. Because Caesar's image is on the coin. He owns it. So my question is how? If government is for good and we're supposed to submit to, give government, well, I gave one of the answers. If we're, supposed to, if we're supposed to pay the government what is owed them, how do we do that? Well, thankfully, the Bible is not silent about this. Actually, very repeated in the New Testament is how we are to, how we are to interact with the government. So listen to Romans 13.1. Romans 13.1, Paul says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 14, be subject to the Lord's sake for every institution, whether it be to the emperors as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil. Titus 3, 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient, ready for every good work. What's the thrice commanded thing here? Be submissive. Submit, a.k.a. just be good citizens or just be a good law-abiding citizen. That's, that's what Jesus and the New Testament seem, I mean, is teaching. And look with me. I mean, Romans 13, as we said, which is one of the most, um, I mean, the clearest picture in the New Testament that we get of how we relate to government. Romans 13, 7, Paul lays out multiple things that we can be doing. It says this, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. How can we render to the government what is due them in a God-glorifying way, according to that verse? Pay your taxes before April 15th. <laughs> right, Michael? Michael Schmidt, he's an accountant, so he's for it. Uh, but pay your taxes or, 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 or pay the revenue that is due that the government, even if you don't feel like it's fair, you pay it. You pay respect. You respect your leaders. We honor our leaders even when we don't agree with them. According to Scripture, we're also commanded to do what we did this morning. Pray for our governmental leaders. This is how we can respect, show respect and honor them. Listen again to 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3. First of all then, Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. 
for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And then verse 3, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. This is why we did this at the beginning of our service. And frankly, while I was studying this week, I was a little convicted that we don't do this more regularly in the corporate worship gathering. So when we are upset, when we are frustrated by the choices that our leaders and government make, according to Scripture, our impulse should be to pray for them. And isn't this such a timely text for us? Such a volatile political landscape that we live in. And even this past week with the decisions, I mean with the leaked decisions that might be made in the future, we can pray, as Austin prayed, for leaders to make wise decisions, for leaders to make godly decisions. And, for, I mean, and, and the argument of the text is that God is sovereign over them, and he'll work through them. So pray for them to make good decisions. And First Timothy says that this is good and pleasing in the sight of God. And I know what some of you guys are thinking in your brains. Actually, I don't know that, but I have an inkling. I have a thought. I don't know. I don't, but I think I do. Tell me if I'm wrong. For some of you, you might be thinking, well, it's all good and well. That's cool. It was written 2,000 years ago. But the authors of Scripture, God and, and, and the Holy Spirit wrote that, wrote that back then. You can't know what it's like in the United States in 2022. It's too volatile. It's too politically divided for us to do something like this. I want to say you're right, but I also want to say it was way worse back then. It was way worse back then. Uh, Just think with me. The government in which Jesus is operating here is the very government that will kill him in a few days. The government in which which Peter writes that command in 1 Peter uh, is the very government that, that beheaded Christians and put their heads on stakes because they were Christians. The very government that Paul writes, the very governmental context that Paul writes in, puts him in prison and ultimately puts him to death because he is a Christian. The government that, that so, so, so what do we see? I mean, what's the, what do we see here? It's that the command in the midst of the cor- most corrupt government is to do what? Is it to always rebel against the system? Is it to buck back and say, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not paying taxes. No, it's to submit, to honor, to pay your taxes, (laughs) to pay revenue, to pray for them. If Paul could write that, no, and if Jesus could say that in his sovereignty, knowing what would happen to him in a few days, we can certainly obey that here and now, can't we? And since we have an obligation to earthly government, that means that we do not have the option to say, ah, like I thought I did, uh, ah, the government's too bad, so I'm just not going to be involved. What difference am I going to make? How can we render and obey Christ's teachings here? Here, how about this? Be knowledgeable of what's happening in government. Like, be knowledgeable of the big dis- decisions and issues that are happening. In America, we can vote which was not always, uh, that's not a given. We can vote. You can make your voice heard. If you don't like what's going on, you can run for public office. You can serve. You can work. If we don't like what's going on, we can write our politicians. We can call them up and chat with them and pray for them. 
So I, I, just say, I just say that to say there's lots of ways in which we can obey this teaching of render to Caesars that which is Caesars. We need to get involved. And let me just say this. I also know, or there, I can feel this impulse even in my head of, okay, yeah, but we in history, you see over and over again examples of Christians like Diedrich Bonhoeffer or like other Christians going against government because that government is corrupt. Like, not only corrupt, but that government was seeking them harm or seeking their families harm. Or even think about Daniel. Uh, the book of Daniel was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They did not bow the knee. They did not respect and, 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 and submit to that government. And I will say, that's a good thing. But look at what those, look at what caused that rebellion to happen. Huge issues. Huge issues over God not being worshipped. Big issues over suffering and like death threats. Not little issues. So let us not run so fast to rebelling against this government whenever things don't go the way that we want. It takes wisdom, godly wisdom, to know when that thing is that, that type of behavior is necessary. We have an obligation to earthly government. But Jesus saying here, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. We also see another truth about government. So the so truth number two that we get from that render to Caesar's that which is Caesar's is this. As Christians, we do not have sole obligation to one earthly government. As Christians, we do not have sole obligation to one earthly government. We don't have sole obligation to just one governmental system. So in the Old Testament, following the one true God meant that you were tied to the nation of Israel. For the Pharisees at this moment, this was the framework in which they approached Jesus. They thought that Jesus was coming to reign politically in their one nation. And the government, they thought that the government and the nation that they had to be a part of had to not only support the worship of Yahweh, but propagate the worship of the one to God. And we can understand they're thinking this is the way that it has been. This is when the way that God has moved. I mean, listen to God's call of Abraham in Genesis 12. He says this, Go from your country and from your kindred to your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. But now, Jesus approves of the Roman government. And Jesus' approval of Caesar and his, and his teaching to submit to Caesar, this whole idea that you, if you follow God, you have to be tied to this one nation was ripped apart. He unhitches this idea that in order to be a follower of Jesus, you have to be a part of Israel. For Jesus to legitimize the Roman government, the government that was anti-Jerusalem, the government that would literally go on to kill him in the coming days, what does he do? He legitimizes all forms of government everywhere. He legitimizes the government. He legitimizes government, even government that does not worship God. Government that does not allow the worship of God. He legitimizes. And this is revolutionary for the Pharisees. This is revolutionary for us. This is a total rewiring of a theological brain for the Pharisees. This means that 
that Christians will not come from a single nation, but followers of God will come from all nations. God is not building a single nation, but he's gathering a people from himself, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, and from every government. Not just Israel. And this, isn't this the, problem, the, the promise from the beginning? If we keep reading Genesis 12, we read 1 and 2, Genesis 12, 3 says this. God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and he who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. From the beginning, God meant for his name to be worshipped around the world. And like we do at the end of every week, what do we do? We read the Great Commission when Jesus commissions us and he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So if I had to say this in a, in a short way, I'd say Christians are international. Christians are not national. Christians are international. God has called people from all over, from every nation, for himself. Jesus even says in John 18, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. So think with me practically about what this means for you as a follower of Jesus in this room, in this time. This means that if you are a Christian, that means that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that means that you have more in common with the Christian in North Korea than you do with your neighbor if they don't follow Jesus. This means that you have more in common with the Christian in Russia than you do your own mom or dad if they don't follow Christ. Your own son or daughter if they don't follow Christ. This means that our identifier is not with who represents us in our government. Our identifier is not who sits on Congress's seat. Our identifier is not who sits in the president's seat. But our identifier is on Jesus who sits at the throne of God. Our king, Jesus, identifies us. That means that we, our identity, is not wrapped up in the United States government. So evaluate your life. Like truly evaluate your life, your posts on social media, your viewing habits, how you spend your time. Do you look more Republican or Democrat than you look like Jesus? Do you spend a lot of time and energy focusing on campaigning for the, can- for the candidate that you think is going to solve the nation's problems? And you do that to the, to the point where you put politics at the front seat and Jesus and the church at the back seat. Friends, the church, not politics, is the hope of the world. So let us be a people who strive to be focused on what God is focused on, seeing the nations come to Christ, not Christ building our one nation. This is why we just went to Peru. This is why we go to Timor-Leste. This is why Julio is here, not to indoctrinate Julio in a Western political idea and then send them back to see our ideas and beliefs of a political nation expand over there, but to see the gospel expand. This is why we do. We don't want to indoctrinate this government. We want to see Christ rule and reign. Truth number two, as Christians, we do not have sole obligation to one earthly 
government. Look with me once more, though, at Jesus' answer, starting at verse 16. He asked for that coin, right? He asked for the denarius. And they brought him one, verse 16, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, comma, and to God the things that are God's. We have looked at in depth what it means to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What does Jesus mean when he says, render to God the things that are God's? What, does, do, what do we owe God? Like, what do we owe God? And then the implication, I mean, if you remember, Jesus took the coin, right? He took the coin, he got it from them, and he pointed at Caesar's image. And he says that since Caesar's image is on this, you, you, you pay taxes to him, you submit to him because he owns this area. And don't miss this, the implication is this. What, or more importantly, who is God's image imprinted on? Genesis one twenty seven. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The implication is, who is God's image on? It's you and I. We have God's image imprinted on us. If Caesar image on a coin signifies ownership over a specific place, then God's image on all of humanity signifies his ownership over all things. Not a coin, not a material object that you can lose, but on man and woman, the chief, the crown of creation themselves. Truth number three, and our final truth. As Christians, we have ultimate obligation to God. As Christians, we have ultimate obligation to God. We are God's. He owns us. God is our creator. We already saw this. He created us in his image. He created us with dominion and honor. He's the creator. We're the created thing. So we worship him in the right way. We worship him humbly. But not only that, God is our sustainer. Colossians 1.17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So that means that while you sleep at night, while you need to literally close your eyes and go unconscious to keep living, God keeps your heart beating. God keeps your lungs expanding. So you are not self-sustaining, but God is. God who never slumbers or sleeps keeps you going while you don't even know what's going on. God sustains you. Not only that, God is your sovereign king. Isaiah 40.10 says this, Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He is sovereign. He is king over all things. He rules. God is our sovereign king. God is our tender shepherd. Isaiah 40, 11 says this. He will tend the flock like a shepherd. He will gather the, limbs, the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those who are young. God, because we are his, comforts us. The God of the universe cares about you. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him while you walk the valley of the shadow of death. You will fear no evil because God is with you. Your maker is with you. 
God is our gracious Savior. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We were bought with a price. What was that price? The blood of Jesus Christ. And we don't earn it. We don't deserve it. But it's given to us as grace. Because of that, God is our just justifier. He's holy. He's just. So he doesn't just let sins go, but he is just in the fact of verse 26 of Romans 3. He gave Jesus, verse 26, in order to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be the just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. He justifies you and he's just at the same time. God is our faithful sanctifier. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by God, because God chose you to be first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. I just laid out .00005 of God's divine attributes. So what do we render to this God? What do we give this God? What is he owed? We give him our worship. God is forever worshipped. Revelation 5, we see a picture of heaven, and we see this. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe, from every language, from every people, from every nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We worship this almighty God. But our worship is more than a song, isn't it? Like we, could, we could come here on Sunday mornings, you could sing louder than anybody in this room, and then you could go home and defame God. You could, you could sin against God, and he would not be pleased. We worship him by giving him our all. We give him our beings. We give him our very lives. First Corinthians 6, you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. Friends, Christ has redeemed you. He has restored the image that you tried to lose because of your sin. He restored it in you. What do we owe him but our lives? So, so give to God what is God's. Everything is God's. You are God's. Your sexuality is God's. Your job is God's. Your family is God's. Your watching habits, your viewing habits are God's. The disciples you are making are God's. Your time is God's. Your money is God's. Your friends are God's. We could keep going, but the point is this. Everything is God's, so give it to him. Abraham Kuyper famously says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Speaking of the world, we can give God our worship by representing Him well. So give God your reputation. Your reputation is not your own, your reputation is God's. We want to be like Jesus, where we don't care what people think. 1 Peter 2, 9 says this, 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We worship God by giving him our all, and when the world sees that worship, they see a God who is magnificent. They see a God who is worth following. They see a God who is worth our worship. He owns all. He deserves all. Okay? But here's the deal. You and I are going to fail at this. I fail at this pretty regularly. I'm an everyday first commandment breaker. I don't worship God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. There are going to be days where you don't follow God with all your, and give God everything that is owed him. And if the gospel, if the good news of the gospel, that in order to be saved from your sin, you had to worship God perfectly. You had to give God what he is owed all the time. And if you mess up, it's done, then all of us would be in a heap of trouble, to say the least. All of us would be in trouble. Because all of us, having God's image imprinted on us, have failed to render to the image, put, the, the one who put the image on us, what is due him as the rightful owner. We need to be justified. We need someone to stand in our place and do it perfectly and then apply his good deeds and his righteousness towards us. We need a perfect image bearer. We need a perfect image bearer to live the life full of devotion and worship to God that we could not live. We need a perfect image bearer to, des- to, 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 to take the sin and, and to die the death that we deserve to die because of our rebellion against God. And, and we need a perfect image bearer to conquer the sin that we cannot conquer by ourselves. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21, and you who were once alienated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God himself. This is what the perfect image bearer has done for you who could not bear the image perfectly Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Jesus, by his death on the cross, presents us holy 
and blameless, justified by His grace as a gift. So just as a way of recap, as Christians, we have an obligation to earthly government. As Christians, we do not have sole obligation to one government. But as Christians, we have ultimate obligation to our Maker, to God, who put His image on all of us. And let me just say, if you are here and you are not a Christian, if you are here and you have not placed your faith in Christ, you don't have to try to earn it. Uh, You don't have to try to restore the image that's back in you. But you can come to God who formed you, who knew you in your mother, who not only knew you, but, but created you while you were in, before the foundation of the world, but also in your mother's womb. And you can, you can pray to him that you are a sinner and that you want Jesus to be the savior of your world, of your life. And then like that, you're a follower of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we, we just praise you for putting your image uh, on our hearts. Uh, we pray right now that we would worship you uh, with our hearts, like with our whole hearts. I pray that, that we would respond by singing, yes, but we would respond by being changed on, how, on just how we, how we live our lives in response to you. I pray that you would help us by your spirit to, to, to see you rightly and to worship you, truly worship you by giving you what is yours. We are yours. Our life is an offering, Lord. So I pray that you would just help us to respond now, uh, and it's by, uh, by, the, by the blood of your Son that we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand.